Brad Kugler, how are you doing, man? Awesome, Alan. Great to see you again. All right. I see uh, this is the home office office away from the office going on back here. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have been working in my office since the beginning of COVID. And yeah. I'll be honest, I had to come home and change shirts so I can uh, look presentable. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it looks like maybe this is the home office, but it looks like you could start a startup in your home office. I, you've, got desk space. you've got desk space for it. I got a great big office off the bedroom here and there's four stations. There's one next to me and two behind me. And uh, my wife has that side and I have this side. So but you're right. I could have a four person company in here. No problem. Who's got who's got a four or five workstation uh, home office? I don't know. This is great, man. Only somebody who's like in the startup game that you know had a pretty good run, which you did, and we're gonna get into, you're on your second run now. Um, and uh, the first run uh, paid for all this, and now the second run is you know gonna pay for the, the big yacht and stuff that'll come later. Um, well, man, it's, it's always fun to talk with you. We're here in Tampa Bay, Florida. Um, you and I, it's, we've got a funny story, actually. We've, we've kind of, we've known each other um, pushing 20 years, 18, 2001, 2002-ish. Yeah. Maybe maybe 0203, somewhere in there. And uh, it's a funny story because I worked for a small um, software development, custom software development uh, company, actually founded by ex-Microsoft employees, really cool boutique firm that I was fascinated with. Um, as you know, Paul was uh, one of the youngest uh, programmers ever hired at Microsoft. He was already retired. When I met him, he was, re he was retiring from Microsoft at 26 years old or 27. I think he started at 16 and retired at 26 or 17 and 27. It was ridiculous, and uh, and I was so fascinated with him, as I know you were. And and um, by the way, I reconnected with him recently, and uh, uh, when I was in Seattle, because I visited uh, visited Seattle. But um, but you know, and he had a partner uh, in in URI, and uh, they had a really cool little custom software development uh, team, and we were working on the coolest stuff, man. Right, the coolest stuff, and um, and we were always looking for new development projects. And uh, and you were friends with with Uri and uh, and he said, hey, go see my friend Brad because you're about the same age. He's like, go see Brad. He he's got a he his, he and his family have a business uh, over across town that and um, it's a movie rental um, distributor, wholesale distributor business. And um, and go see what's going on with his technology. <laughs> see if we can help. See if we can build something. See if we can build something for him. Yeah. And I walked in and I was. Young, a lot younger and you know I wasn't we were so small that I was sometimes I was doing sales calls sometimes I was managing projects and this day I was like making a sales call right and I walked in your office and um, and we sat down and uh, you were pretty tough man I remember this I was intimidated by you I'll be honest I was like but but you were kind of a grizzled business person at that point you were beyond your years you've been running this big this business so even though you were young you, you it's no surprise you were tough yeah I was 12 years in at that point already. So I was well-rounded, you might say. <laughs> yeah. And, and do you, you remember the meeting and uh, you remember being tough on me? Do you remember? I, I do. And I figured because it's hard to negotiate with your friends, Uri, you know, he, he and I figured he was sending you as sort of a, a pre-negotiator and I'd call up Uri and he says, I'll just talk to Alan. Just, I'm like, dude, let's just work this deal out. You know, and he didn't want to get involved, you know? And he really wanted you to do it. And I'm like, hmm, all right. Isn't that something, right? Like, yeah, exactly. So I was kind of going to be the punching bag, really, you know, between um, 
between the two. And, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why that was why you were being so tough on me. Um, but yeah. we had a really good we had a good meeting. And, you know, and you were and you were running um, your, your, your family business, which, um, you know, we, a lot of folks can remember, obviously, the success of Blockbuster and the VHS recording and, you know, the massive industry of VHS movie recording. And um, and then it transitioned to DVD, but you know, like a twenty-plus-year run of you know physical media movies, and you had this, you had these contracts with uh, with libraries and schools, if I remember, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, the business started. My dad bought it in eighty-eight, eighty-nine, just as I was getting out of school, and um, he kind of encouraged me to come out from Los Angeles. I had a marketing job to come and and run the company because honestly. It was the it was the uh, recession, the 90, 91 recession. And yeah. he wanted he, he was like, I remember his, his comment to me is like, look, you can only be a hero. This business is failing. If it fails, no problem. You did your best. <laughs> and if you revive it, it's all you, baby. You know, so so you can only be a hero. Was this so, the VHS? Was this the yeah. VHS uh, DVD uh, um, transition window? That we're no, talking this, about? We, yeah, it was that it was called distribution video and audio. So it was VHS. We mainly sold to blockbuster stores, and we, as they were opening in mass in the late '80s, early '90s, they were using us not exclusively, but we were finding the inventory and selling them to their franchisees, and that was the biggest part of the business. Now that business pivoted and evolved over the next two and a half decades, but that was what it was at that point. So you were like a, a wholesaler for these things, and and yeah. uh, did I do I remember libraries and schools were also so, yeah libraries and schools came into play about seven or eight years later, about ninety eight. So we had been selling, we were getting all this stuff in, and we noticed the margins were much higher selling to libraries and schools who had them inside their their facilities, and so we started growing that division, and when the hence the conversation with you is we wanted to build a an e commerce website. That was driven by POs rather than credit card swipes because they pay by PO, and that's what you guys did for us. So business was just was boom, and I think yeah, business was booming, and um, and you, I mean, how much square footage? I think you had up to fifty employees. How much square yeah, footage? At the, at the peak, when I came into the business, the business was doing about two million, and it had you know 12, 14 employees, and at our peak, and I'm going to say our peak was two thousand and twelve. We got up to twenty-five million and about fifty-five employees. Right, and just just killing it. And it, pretty soon it was, and then it became all DVDs and so forth. And we're going to get into that story and how it and how it and how it. I hate to say how it ended, but there, there was some definitely some uh, some some challenges. It's going to be um, a little foreshadowing there. But that piece of technology we we built for you, it it held up, right? We used it until we closed the business in two thousand sixteen. So. <laughs> Um, that's crazy you know that, that just warms my heart to know that something i sold you uh you know held up yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic um okay so so um we want to get into that story but i have a little um i have a little slide deck i'd like to do a surprise question on my uh on my guests and um and 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 so this uh this kind of is a kind of a big question, right? <laughs> right. So, can something old be made new again? Right. Like this idea of, you know, you know, you went through this VHS DVD 
And of course, you know, that went to streaming. So something old became new again. Right. Um, and then, and then you're, 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 you're kind of doing it again, man. You, you're taking, uh, uh, you know, you're taking direct mail and, and, and making it, making it new again. Right. I see this pattern, which to me seems pretty brilliant. So, uh, you, you kind of, you kind of believe in this. I think this probably hits a couple other things in your in your uh, business career. I'm guessing. Well, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I was disrupted when we, you know, the transition from VHS to DVD was a no brainer. Our business grew through that. It was a natural progression. However, when it went from DVD to streaming, that there was no ease of entry or transition. I knew I was a dinosaur, and despite several tries. We weren't going to be able to bridge that gap as a company. It was yeah. well beyond our our comfort zone and our wheelhouse. So when I started or got into direct mail 2.0, my, my number one thing on another business is I was not going to be disrupted again. I was going to be the disruptor. So I was going to have the technology that revolutionized an existing industry. Rather than it being done to me, I was going to do it to it next time. So Right. Exactly. But 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 uh, also this idea that, uh, you know, direct mail that, you know, somehow we can make that smarter from a technology perspective um, is is really pretty revolutionary behind the scenes. Right. Like what you're able to do. Talk about that briefly, about like how how direct mail 2.0 works fundamentally. So obviously everybody has gone to their mailbox and gotten an advertisement or a letter asking for some type of engagement or action. So that piece of ink on paper has been around for, you know, 150, 200 years. And with the advent of digital technology and all these mediums, how can you leverage that tried and true with the new to get an even better level of engagement? So we have taken seven technologies and the way they're timed and how they're done synergistically and simultaneously with a piece of mail, we've shown a lift of direct mail almost consistently by at least 23 to 46%. So if, you, if you're doing ink on paper, you get a certain result. Usually it's a 1% response rate. Now it may not sound like much, but when you add our technology to that campaign, you're getting a a 1.25 to a 1.5% response rate. That's a huge lift when you're talking about from a 1% to a 1.5%. That's almost a 50% growth. Right, right. We do that for about a 10% increase in cost. Right. And and so, and, and you, were, you were telling me that, I mean, in the last, um, uh, since you guys started, uh, you, you took over the business and it had, you know, uh, we're going to get into this more specifically, but you've you've just had tremendous growth uh, since you took this thing over. It was making low six figures, and now we're into a few million dollars uh, in, in climbing every quarter. Um, and is it, do you think it's uh, what, what do you attribute that growth you've had for the last couple of years to? Just a really great sales and marketing team. Um, the technology was already great. Was it? You feel like it's your sales and marketing, or do you feel like that the economy or the or, or the the world has come your way? What do you think? It's, it's, you know, it's very rarely one thing, you know, it's a combination of everything you said. We've improved the technology over the last three years. We've tightened up our sales and marketing efforts to focus on what works and our internal processes have also tightened up. And on top of that, you have a demand in the market. 
guys that are still doing just ink on paper, direct mail, they're at a disadvantage and they're searching for something that's a little more technologically advanced. And, and really there's maybe two or three players in our wheelhouse. None of them are an apples to apples to what we are. We are, we are by far the leader in this niche and uh, so much so that I've already been approached to be bought out by my two competitors. So, yeah, and that's that's always a good sign. Um, what what's the kind of key differentiator would you say with Direct Mail 2.0 versus kind of the other stuff out there? Um, well, for one, there's not that much other stuff that does what we do. Okay. For two, it's a simple value proposition, and and I'll equate it to say an investment. If if I could bring show you an investment that's going to improve your ROI by 23 to 46%, but it's only about a 15, maybe 10% increase in cost. Are you going to do it? Yeah. It, it well, falls into no brainer. So you yeah. go, yeah. And it's, but how I'm curious how I'm curious, like how, I mean, if I were using this, like the, like the, I hate to ask for a feature function question, but like, what are just like, is it just a quicker is am I able to get my campaigns up faster or am I able to measure results easier? Measure results easier, uh, track engagement, mm -hmm. recover uh, leads or engagement that you wouldn't be able to cover. And I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody calls and you, you send out 10,000 postcards that have your phone number and your website on. Five people call it. Receptionist boggles the call. Nobody's <laughs> checking the website. The website doesn't convert. Those are lost engagement. You have no way to recover those those interest seekers with our product the the caller information is, is memorialized and recorded forever with all the demographics of that caller um the the website traffic is tracked anonymously so even if the person didn't convert or engage with the website we're able to get the residential address of that engager without breaking any privacy or security laws and then we can match that back to the address the mailing was set for true mail attribution. And even anonymous visitors that come through Google or PPC actions, we can give you those addresses, which you can then remail to. It's called direct mail retargeting so wow. that you have a chance to re-engage those failed engagement opportunities. Wow. That's, in, that's pretty, I never heard that direct mail retargeting. Wow. Um, that's pretty, uh, that's the new buzzword in the direct yeah. mail industry. That's pretty and innovative, yeah. Our premier products. You know what's funny? I mean, I know you hear this all the time, but I got to say it. Like, we we all look at our direct mail, and and frankly, it's gotten lessened over the last you know five plus years. You know, for for obvious reasons, for cost. But so now you the, the little bit that you get, you look at it. Yes. And um, you know. And, and that's our key selling point: is is yeah. how many emails do you get? You probably get oh, two hundred a day. So it's it's so bad. It's just horrible. I've got rules set up to just just to just to file. I don't even see half. It. It's just terrible. And exactly. And how many pieces of mail are in your mailbox? Five, six, yeah, maybe? five or six, right? And you look at every one of them. You know. You yeah. So so you have a better chance, much better chance, of creating an engagement or or a conversion from a piece of mail than you do of an email or a banner ad or even anything. No and the way behind us is we combine that direct mail with those other things so that you get multiple impressions with the same message, same creative, and you're more likely to engage.
Well, man, that, that's what I mean by make taking something you know old and making it new again. And uh, really, that's great. I'll take a quick break. I want to do the Secure Startup uh, sponsor, right? So this is our sponsor for the episode, Secure Startup. So this is an online, online one-stop place for all the documents that you would want to manage between a startup founder and an investor. Right. So, uh, Brad, pay attention because I, I know I know you need this. Right. Because you're uh, you actually I don't know that you're raising money last time we talked, but um, you've always got investors circling. Right. So. So in, in, when and if you, you need to, this will be what you'll want to use secure startup. And it just manages that whole process of document flow and sign offs and confidentiality. And it's one of the few products out there that really focuses on that that particular um, that particular need. So. Let's let's jump back to the backstory, Brad, a little bit. Okay, so um, where'd you grow up again? I want I, I, I want to say Chicago, but I'm I'm trying you, to remember. You're spot on. I mean, uh, you're probably old enough. I don't know if your viewers are, but you, everybody remembers those uh, John Hughes movies from the '80s: Weird Science, you know, Risky Business. <laughs> Um, hey, Weird Science still makes me smile just when I think about that movie. It's just one of those movies that got me good. Those were all filmed in my hometown. So we were the oh. typical upper middle class suburban neighborhood where, you know, even Home Alone was filmed in our town. So um, pretty. Movie, movie set roads, movie set. Uh, Trees, brick homes, you know. Yeah. Well, how did you, what, what did, did your, your dad and your parents, your, your, your parents must have done pretty well. What, what, was, what was their uh, living? So, so basically, it actually goes back to my great grandfather, who uh, came to the U.S. I think it was in uh, nineteen thirteen. I'm going to say, and he started a window washing company in Chicago. Here we go with these immigrant entrepreneurs. I did a whole episode on immigrant entrepreneurs. You you don't ever bet against them. <laughs> it's do or die. They yeah, fail. Do or die. Don't bet against that guy or that gal. Mm -mm. So it, they started a company in 1920 called Millard Maintenance, which then passed on to my grandfather, which then passed on to my father. And uh, it was going to pass on to me, I think. But um, my father and my grandfather didn't get along. My father was a bit of a maverick. And uh, around the mid-80s, my father decided he wanted to be a screenwriter. You know, he's making good money. He didn't have a... Need where, where was he? Where was he making big money in the family business? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. He okay. was in the family business. My grandfather was still working. He was probably five, six years away from retirement, but my dad couldn't wait it out. And my dad had asked me. I have to say, I did one of those come to work days. It was a large janitorial company, four thousand employees, and wow. he brought me to work one day. And I was just—I think it was like senior, or junior in high school. Cause I was like, what do you do all day? This, you know, and I went to work and I'm like, man, this is boring. You know, I didn't take into account the mid six figure salaries making. And the <laughs> I just was like, this is boring. You didn't know any of that would be important one day. No, no. It was like, what do you, this, you know, uh, forget this stuff. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, so he's, he's like, okay, you're out. Well, I'm not into this either. So I'm going to get myself bought out. And he did. That's where he actually got the money to start or purchase the uh, called the VHS company at that time. Got he it. did a few other little dabbles in between, and honestly, they failed. Yeah, uh, but that was the genesis. I worked at the company a few well, summers. The VHS company didn't fail. I mean, the, no. that didn't fail. That thing. Well, was, eventually it did. When, I know, but it cooked for a long time. Twenty-seven years, you know. So, 
Mm. I can't consider that a failed no, entrepreneurial no. event. No. Yeah. So he bought that um, here uh, in Florida. Um, and wait a minute. Um, what what is what part of what is that little town that it's in? I'm sorry, near the railroad. Clearwater. No, but the little the little the other the little town that the actual company's in at the end of Tampa Road. Like, uh, what's that little with the? Oh, oh, oh that, that was DVA. I mean, we moved there, but it's started... yeah. But what was that? What that little? Why am I drawing blank? It's right down the road from me. It's near Honeymoon Island. It's the. Yeah. Uh, you mean the name of the company that's in there now? The little, no, the little city, the little township. Oh, the township. Ozona. Thank you, Ozona. O z o n a. Really yeah. cool little, amazing yeah. little, uh, out little cluster of uh, old homes and oak trees, and nobody would have guessed it's a little, uh, you know, little town in near Tampa, Florida, right? Yeah. Um, with little bars and stuff, and uh, that's where I met you when I came to visit. Was at that office, right? Right. Ozona, right? And and so you're so he bought the business. The business was already there in Ozona. No way. The business was in a, a rented warehouse near downtown Clearwater, yeah. uh, and uh, it was him and a couple of partners. Uh, they bought the business for I can tell you for three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen eighty eight. The business was doing about a million and a half, and it was. I'm gonna guess it was a million and a half dollar purchase. Uh, yeah, that's what. Then no, they bought one, time, one time revenue. I bet he bought it for one time revenue. No, it was a million oh, and a half. You said okay. He, he bought it for I think it was two times earnings. So the three partners came up with three hundred thousand. They bought the business that was doing a million five in sales, um, and that was in nineteen eighty eight. And um, you know, pretty good deal. I think you know, yeah. pretty good deal. And uh, yeah. they were running it as I said until the uh, 90, 91 recession and yeah. partners all ran for the hills. My dad was left with the business and he did not see the light at the end of the tunnel. He saw an oncoming train and that's when he called me up from my little marketing job in LA after I got out of school and said, you want to, you want to do this thing. I'm going to go and get my insurance license and sell insurance. You wow. know, okay. He said, it's still my business. You're going to pay me. I think it was, it seemed like a lot at the time. You know, this is still <laughs> it was two grand a week. I'm going to get another job. But you're going to pay me you're two like, grand a week. You're like, okay, I'm just a kid, but okay. Okay. All right. Well, all right. And you're going to come and you're going to make $500 a week and you're going to run the business. You're going to do all the work. Yeah. And for, at, me, at that point, I'm like, well, that's $100 more than I'm making in my job in Los Angeles. All right. Yeah. And I get free rent. I can live at home and. My dad said, I'll give you a car. And I said, all right, good, done deal. And uh, that's value-based pricing is what that is. Yeah, yeah. And he he did a trimming of all the, did a bun big bunch of layoffs and, and, and all sorts of clean house before he departed. He was there with me for several months before he he departed the, uh, the scene. And uh, I brought my brothers in, you know, and I said, all right, let's do this. We inch back, you know, it took. A while pivot some things and uh i think it was i think it was actually in the late it was right after you after you 2004 2005 we were doing really well my dad's like i'm coming back <laughs> <laughs> but i'm getting four a week now you know <laughs> of course like, wait uh, uh, okay i give myself a raise you know Oh my gosh! Nice job. I'm taking my business. Play like this. He played the dad card on you like twice on the way out and the way he tried to come back. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. And then, and then, um, 
he wanted to do something else. And this was 2008. Oh, he decided to be a property developer. And he's like, okay, I'm going to leave again. And I said, wait a minute, dad, I'm a little older and wiser now. You can leave, but the money we pay you is a buyout. It's not a hold my seat warm. Not a dividend. <laughs> so he, he agreed. And um, oh we ended up Funny. paying a, a million eight over the next uh, eight years, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, did really well. You did great. You know? Yeah, yeah, you did. You did uh, Deserve that, and he, he he's he taught you he taught you a few things by example. <laughs> no, exactly, and you know what? He, he's my closest ally, my biggest confidant, and um, you know, it, he he's doing other things now. But that yeah. that sort of brought us up to. I mean, I don't know how much you want to hear of the. Yeah, pivot. yeah, no, I'm just curious. So, okay, so the by the mid, so the mid to you know 2000. Uh, I met, met you in 2002-ish, and then uh, 05, you, you bought your dad out, basically, so he'd stop coming, coming and going. Um, and, then, um, and then this is a, you know, VHS, this is probably when the DVD transition was starting, I'm guessing. DVD transition started in 98. In okay, fact, but it got in full swing by early, mid-2000s. Yeah, it was funny because 97, the first mm -hmm. DVDs came out. Wizard of Oz was the first DVD ever released. Really? Yeah, I remember it because I was, I had an eBay account I was messing around with, and I thought, you know what? We ended up getting a couple cases of Wizard of Oz DVD. So I said, let, let me let me put these on on eBay and see what happens. And I tell you, I didn't I didn't remember to put a quantity. I just said I got them, and and you know you can whatever. The DVDs actually sold out. I think I sold thirty of them in about thirty seconds. And I was, there might be something to this, you know, I was like, whoa, whoa. Okay. So that's when I started transitioning the business to DVD and online sales. Got it. It's like a portal, like, um, as in when you say online sales, you mean you buy on my, you can buy on my website now. That's what you mean. Well, I didn't have a website. Okay. So, right, but, mm -hmm. but at that point it was all, it was e eBay was it, you know? Oh, okay. Very mm -hmm. few people invested in building big, you know, enterprise class e-commerce sites in 1997. It was still, it was Amazon and two or three other players, really. It was now. It was, speaking of speaking of Amazon, I remember that you you shared with me. I think this is right that at one point you were the number one DVD seller on Amazon. Yes, for for quite, I think a couple of years. So I when I became a big seller on eBay, uh, I got a call from. I remember his name was Barnaby Jones, who's now a very senior person at Amazon, and said, "Listen, we're opening this thing called Z Shops, you know, or oh no, I'm sorry, Amazon Auctions. And what you're doing on eBay, we want you to do it for us. And I'll tell you what, if you come and start selling your stuff on Amazon Auctions, we're going to give you no fees, you know, for 90 days or whatever. Oh, okay, great, let's do it. Worked out great. And Amazon Auctions transitioned to something called Z Shops." which transitioned to what is now called Amazon Marketplace. And uh, for, I think, a year or two, we were definitely a top five seller on on Amazon. And then very quickly, word spread, and they opened it up to everybody. And uh, it got it got much more competitive to the point where if, if something's so crowded and I can't make margin on it, I'll, I'd rather not do it. And, so you, uh, you, you had the um, – you just had – you had just already so much volume and distribution. It was easy for you to like when you went 
you were able to get that number one status on DVD sales at Amazon because you just had so much momentum already behind you as a business. Yeah. You had such a yeah. there was very little competition at that point. You know, if there yeah, were yeah. If there were a couple hundred vendors back in ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, that was a lot. You know, so so let's so let's talk about one of my other favorite stories. I can vaguely remember you telling me a couple years ago. Um, there's a, a certain uh, meetup you had in, in Seattle or somewhere you went up to, to visit Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was, on, was it on their request or did you just go up there and start knocking on doors? No, no, no. I, they had a, um, so the guys that were the big sellers on Amazon, they actually called us to, we were a user group. They called us to a meeting. This is when they were rolling out FBA fulfillment by Amazon. And they really wanted to pitch us, to put our stuff in their warehouse, use their uh, infrastructure and fulfillment. And, you know, at first I got to say, I was like, so they can charge us rent, you know, great. I'm already giving them 25% of my commission for my sale. And now they want us to put our stuff in their warehouse, hold our inventory and charge me rent. You know, <laughs> it was a big F you. I am so not interested. It was very early in the stage and, you know, they put us in front of, you know, a whole group of Amazon execs. And I think it was almost a focus group. And I got up to go to the bathroom, you know, as they're set, they're pitching us to pay them rent in my eyes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I as time went on, it was more to ensure that the same level of service could be delivered for us resellers because we were slow and miss ships and all. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 We yeah. Were, we didn't know what we were doing. So I understand the logic now and it was really smart. So I go into the bathroom and doing my thing and standing next to me in the urinal is Mr. Jeff Bezos. And he, <laughs> he was behind the glass, I guess, listening to our focus group. And we had a chuckle about it. And um, he was very polite and thanked us for coming. And, and uh, it was, it's a fun little story. So, you know? so that was a, the first, first and only time you met Jeff Bezos though. I think you, no, I met him enough. Then we started going back every year. And then as this thing got bigger, he would come and talk to our group. And our group was only maybe 30, 40 people. But, um, you know. Uh, you guys were the heavy hitters in the space. Yeah, that's we, we were. We were. I mean, the, the, the resellers were starting to become a significant portion of their revenue. And they wanted to nurture these third-party sellers. Uh, it, I don't know so much nurture us, but understand how to improve and grow that part of the business it's easier for them because it's just a commission and you know it's it's more profitable especially yeah. when they're charging us to ship our own stuff you know so yeah. um, was the jeff bezos other the other couple encounters you had were they just kind of uh more just brief encounters were there any yeah, other, there any, other great bath, any other any other good stories there no 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 but he was very cordial and and this was so long ago. He still had a little hair at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine. I remember that that early Bezos look. Yeah. And it's really great because in their conference room, it was an old hospital in in um, Seattle, and they had this giant whiteboard, which I'm sure has now been memorialized, where they would have all of their milestones from '94, and someone wrote their first sale, and then it was literally 40, 50, 60 feet long, and it was all signed by everybody and they still had that in their conference room and wow. uh, I, i'm sure it's probably in a museum somewhere you know wow really yeah. anything else in your anything else come to mind when you think about those amazon visits that you know that's a great story there the whiteboard or the endless whiteboard that's a great one anything else uh 
uh, jump out that is memorable about Amazon because that's that's early. Those are early days uh, for Amazon. Not many people, you know, got that kind of access. Yeah, it was interesting. I'll tell you one of the takeaways I got is so these were a lot of maverick reseller home-based business guys. And we'd get invited into Amazon's house and they'd serve us drinks and lunch. And, and literally their, their top five exec structure would sit there, even Jeff Bezos for one or two of the years. And you get these, I remember being embarrassed that some of these guys were just so rude and so accusatory of Jeff Bezos of being the devil. And, and so much so that I stood up, I said, do you see the opportunity we've gotten here? You know, this is not a perfect world, but we've been given a business that didn't exist five years ago. And we've got some of these guys yelling at Jeff and yelling at these other execs and they're sitting there taking it. And I would have been like, if it was my house, I'd be like, who are you? You get that. Nothing if it was not for us. You know? <laughs> and I just remember it, being, patient. It, it exposed me to, I think, some of the underbelly of the less professional side of some entrepreneurs, whether it's an entitlement or just a rudeness, you know, and not looking at what that opportunity has given us from Amazon, you know? And yeah, that, no, but it would have been hard to see then. Like you said, even you in your own mind were skeptical, but you showed respect. Right? Exactly. And it really right. comes down to respect, you know? Yeah. And and appreciation. I mean, I mean you, they, they probably, I guess they paid your way out there and all that good stuff. So, I mean, you know. No, no they didn't. We were actually at a conference and then uh, they invited us. It was a conference in Seattle and they invited us to their headquarters in their yeah. big conference room on the top floor. I mean, you know, they weren't small potatoes in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Um, no, that's that's awesome, man. Not many people, uh, you know, had that experience. You've got to really cherish those, I think, uh, from a startup world, you know, with the world we live in. Those are those are there's only, you know, you know, you can count on one hand how many of these Amazon kind of origin stories are out there. Um, and so, OK, so you're riding high, you're riding high and uh, like big time high, like you may, you got in the company, this is now we're in, we're in the late thousands, if you will. Um, and the, uh, the, you, you make, the company's making, I would imagine making tons of money because now it's just DVDs, just once you get these distribution channels flowing, you, you gotta be making a lot of money personally and also the company, right? Honestly, it was, it was really nice there. I mean, on from, from late nineties until 2012, I, I had the freedom where I didn't have to show up every day. It was just a money machine. That machine everybody wants to create as an entrepreneur so you don't have to do the grind. I yeah. had it. And I had it. it would go whether you showed up for work or not, it was going that thing was gonna make money every day. Exactly. It didn't really matter. You know, it was almost the money was being made honestly in, in spite of me, you know. And <laughs> it allowed me to travel. I, I would travel with NGOs as a semi-professional photographer to war zones and, and, you know, disasters. And, um, it was fantastic. And until my wife decided that it was too dangerous. Well, I want to get, I want to get into this. I, this is, I want to get into this because there's a lot of young entrepreneurs out here that actually, you know, we I focus a lot on the, the struggles and difficulties and even to the story to this point, you know, and, and after, but this is a moment that I want you to take some time and talk about how sweet it was, because this is what you're about to describe is kind of what all of us, you know, all the aspiring entrepreneurs are fighting for and hoping for that they can, 
you know, have, you know, tons of cash flow, travel, pursue hobbies like photography, and just, just live an amazing life. And, and you did it for like a decade, like 10 years plus. Describe, I mean, you, you, you bought a, you probably bought a big house. You probably had a boat, your cars, like just, just let's, let's kind of just bathe. Let's just bathe in how awesome this was a little bit. It really mind. was. And it really was awesome. And, you know, you, you, you don't feel like going to work. And it wasn't one of these jobs where, well, it's an e-commerce job and I can work from anywhere. It was, I didn't have to work if I didn't want to work. Yeah. Kind of. yeah. I obviously wanted to check on with my employees, but yeah. I would get a call. I was into the photography thing. I think everybody remembers the big, horrible 2010 earthquake in, in, in Haiti, right? And I got a call to be able to jump on a plane with John Travolta, fly down there, document it, um, mm. go around with him. And, uh, you know, if I had a nine to five, I couldn't just disappear like that, you know, but I was afforded the opportunity to do something like that. And it was just that. That's right, what, was the, what was the nicest? Hold on. What was the nicest car you had at that time? I was into BMW M3s. I had a string of them in a row. You know, it was that was my thing. It wasn't over the top. Yeah, yeah. That was my that was my go to yeah. car. Yeah, and I had a Jeep too, so I had two cars, which was yeah. really nice. You know, and uh, I remember my wife even kind of making fun of me, like, "Who has two cars? That's ridiculous." <laughs> we do, man. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Now, but, um, you got? Did you get to buy like your dream home, so to speak? I mean, at the time it was, but I can say that we, I bought a really nice house in 2000 and then in 2008, still in this yeah. decade of, op, I wouldn't say opulence, but I was able yeah. to completely renovate it and redo it from the top down. You know, I added an entire floor to it. I mean, expensive renovation stuff, not just yeah. paint yeah. and, and Like carpet. six figure, six figure renovation stuff we're talking. And like I paid more for the renovations than I paid for the house. Yes, yes. What other yeah. kind of cool? I, I apologize for asking, but it's fun to indulge in this stuff. And I know it's some of it's like sometimes I know you're going to say, "Wow, I wish if I could go back, I would would have would have saved more and those kind of things." But it is kind of fun to to indulge a little bit and and remember that. And and that is um, so. Like what else? Like what else was some of the coolest stuff that only somebody who was making the kind of money you were making was able to do? I can know? tell you that I two things happened. I think it was 2011, which was our best year. <clears throat> I remember getting a bonus check at the end of the year for $110,000. I mean, that's that's on top of the salary I made all year. It's just one check, you know, that, and that's good money. And that's kind of stuff that bank, I mean, that's real money. Yeah. And I ended up buying a second home on the water, uh, which, which was really nice. That's not something everybody can do. Um, the other thing is I took my family on a, a, a Mediterranean cruise. It was thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, this is two thousand and eleven or ten. Yeah, that's fifty and, grand a day. It's probably fifty thousand a day. Who knows? And, and you know, we we did what's called. They don't have something called first class on cruises, but some lines have something called concierge class. It's a separate part of the ship. You have a butler. I mean, it was it was an extravagance, and I don't regret those things. I had the money to do it with. If someone would have said, "Hey," Two years from now, your business is going to be failing. Better think twice. I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> right. But, you know, you get to a point where the money's coming in in spite of you, and you, you, 
I'm not saying you, you get a little bit of a God complex. You're like, what, what, you know, I can what, figure out anything. There's nothing yeah. I can't pay cash. There's nothing I can't pay cash for. There's nothing yeah, I can't do. Oh, if something goes wrong, I'll fix it. You know, no problem. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, yeah. The, the so, bank accounts fat and there's going to be there's two parts of the story I love about. First of all, it's fun to indulge in it because I think it's it's it's, it's nothing to be ashamed, of course. And it's something that we all strive for. Like we want it like we we all want to like in, enjoy that. Like so I love in celebrating that stuff, honestly. And I'm sure you were generous with 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 it in different ways, in your own way, with your, your with church and things like that. staff uh, in 2012, I took the entire company on a five day cruise, you know, and their and their significant others, you know. So it was it and was, their significant others, yeah. So you know, I did you, did, you, did you like did you do other things crazy like did you, you know sometimes when you when you flush like that you know you, you're gift giving and you just kind of it's kind of fun yeah. to like make somebody's day or make somebody's. Well, we I remember the Christmas one of those years where we were you know where I remember my accountant saying to us uh, one of those years he said congratulations and welcome to the top 1% of earners in the world, in America, top one-tenth of 1% earners in the world. And I was like, wow, really? Yeah, you know? Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, uh, you took care of your people, I'm, I'm sure. And, you know, and, uh, you know, Paid my taxes, you know, no debts. I mean, it was, it was nice money in the bank. And it was okay. definitely, it, and it would, it built, you know, and I say 2012 was the peak of it. Yeah. And, you know, in 2013, things started to. So a storm. Okay. So a storm started brewing. Yeah. Dark, dark clouds, dark clouds started forming in the distance. Yes. You know, we had a flat year in 2012. We, yeah. we duplicated what we did in 2011. But, you know, we were fat cats. We gave ourselves raises. We wrote each other checks for a hundred and some grand each, you know, all said and good. But when we were flat for the first time in a decade, you know, you kind of go, uh-oh. And um, that's when, you know, we're like, okay, well, we'll fix it. We've had, we've had bad months and bad quarters, you know, but we'll fix it. So 2013 comes along. Bank balances are dropping. Our, our our bank who's has our line of credit is lowering our line. You know, things are starting to get a little creaky, you know, um, we're, we're obviously second guessing everything we spend and, you know, we had dropped a good 15, what, 20%. What's the, root, what's the root cause at that moment? What, I mean, you it, had a sense of what the root cause was it's coming in. We've got, we've got the, the advent of streaming now. It's starting to impact our business, okay? 2013 was the first noticeable year. Netflix streaming had been around for a year or two. Apple had, was selling movies. The number of outlets that were offering DVDs, video stores were going out of business in droves. Uh, mass merchant type shops like Circuit City was going out of business. Best Buy was reducing square footage for pre-recorded media. It was a war on all fronts. So not to mention was the volume less, but our transactional, our, our, our per piece transaction was dropping too because it was a price war to stay alive and keep revenue coming in. Uh, not to mention we had bad debt coming in from guys going out of business. Mm. 
2000 and late 2013, we got sued by a public company um, because we were a liquidator. So there was a large video chain in Colorado called Ultimate Video who was going out of business. We bought their inventory for cash. We had them sign all the documents that said, hey, this is your inventory to sell. It was leaned by a public company called RentTrack. And, you know, it's a debtor in possession law where that debt transferred to us. And so they, they didn't disclose it. They didn't disclose it to you. No, what happened? It was a sneaky deal, but the guy signed the hold harmless and disclosure personally, or I'm sorry, as a business, not personally. So mm -hmm. the business was defunct. So that business signature held no water. So the big public company was able to go right through them to us. And mm -hmm. they decided to go after us personally, after the company. And the lawsuit started as a, a $2.8 million suit, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I knew the law enough because I'd been in this business and I knew the deep pockets of the company. We weren't getting out of this. They were, this was, this was going to be a problem, you know? Now so was, yeah, they wanted to sue. Couldn't they just, weren't they just kind of suing you for what you paid for it? Or was it going to be a lot more than what you paid for it? Yeah, because the, the claim was I underpaid. So they wanted the full value. Mm. So I'm a liquidator. So if I bought it for five cents on the dollar and it really should have been worth at least 80 cents, they wanted the 80 cents on the dollar. For me. Oh man. That's yeah. no kidding. It was, so that's, so it was, it was like eight times. Almost, so, so all of a sudden your world is changing, not, not just the business, but I would imagine personally, <clears throat> personally at some point, personal stress levels, sleep issues. I'm just going to take some guesses here. Like health, you know, just all of a sudden things are going on. It, I have to say from 2013 at the start of it, and I knew when it happened, we were, we were supposed to take a, uh, we were taking a trip to, to Aspen for spring break. The old lifestyle was still hanging on. It would already planned. Yeah. And we were out there and I remember we went home early because, you know, I'm getting calls from the office, this and this, and, you know, this guy's not paying us and that deal fell through. And, and I'm, I'm like, I can't, I can't enjoy myself. You know, I'm going home. You guys can stay. Get the kids, the, me, the wife and the kids. Yeah. Right? And, you know, I remember that going loud. This is reality setting in. And I bury myself in spreadsheets and I'm this, I'm just not seeing a way out of this thing. You know, we've got, SBA loans and we got massive balances on credit cards and, and uh, you know, so in April of 13, mm -hmm. we went down, I think we were already down a little bit from attrition from 40 people to like 27, you know, it was just a mass layoff. And, you know, and I, and, you know, my brother and I started not getting along. So, okay, we're good now. We're good now. Right. And I'm like, maybe for a little while, but this is not, everything's okay. And he's, he, his job was sales. My job was the operations and finance and, you know, all the nuts and bolts. And, uh, and then I suggested that we take a pay cut. <laughs> he, he looked at me like I have three heads. What? You take a pay cut. I'm the one selling. You need me. Yeah, exactly. He's like, if you can't pay me, I'll just leave. And I'm like, he knows that kills. He kills you. 
Yeah. And, and you know, I'm like, all right, I got to pay him. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to unilaterally take less. And, and I knew, I knew we had a limited runway and I'm like, so we have a limited runway. I'm going to give it to him and I'm going to be stuck with nothing. Or do we just both liquidate the company to ourselves? And, it, you know, part of it was a conscious decision. This medium is going away. How fast can we figure out something else? So over the next, I'm going to say 20, 25 months, it was continual downsizing and downsizing in terms of space, in terms of infrastructure. We started splitting the business zones of responsibility because we couldn't agree on anything. Um, and, you know, when, when things are in a downturn, as I've told you before, I learned way more going down than I did going up. That's when you come alive. That's when you really start looking for out-of-the-box solutions. How do I, you know, there was no way out of this. How can I prolong it? How can I affect it? How can I make it so it doesn't take me personally? And to me, one of my, I think one of my better business maneuvers was the company was, was going to die with cancer. There's no doubt about it. How can I separate my own personal wealth and what I've accumulated over the last 20 years and not let this company take me down with it? So I very carefully was separating those things, making sure certain debts that were encumbered yeah. to me were paid. It's the they corporate veil. I mean, this is the corporate veil. I mean, our, our, our economy, our whole, the whole, our whole capitalist society here, yes, we're set up this way to protect individuals from the from the corporate uh, problems right yes. and that you and you that that is what you're supposed to do yeah and it got to the point in in uh 2016 i mean i i ended up using seventeen thousand dollars of my personal funds to put the corporation we'd had since 1988 through bankruptcy and um i was able to actually as the only bidder on the courthouse steps buy the, what was left from the company back. Now it was only mine, not shared with my brother. The company was was buried legally and completely. We made agreements with the with the uh, personally guaranteed notes. And I was able to start rebuilding. And I rebuilt in, in terms of some online sales and and mainly be recovering some of the assets and the accounts. I, I was able to rebuild a nice little company. Again, we were down to six employees from the ashes of this once, you know, company. Yeah. So, so that, that's kind of a cool story. You know, the whole uh, kind of trying to fight back. And did your brother stick around during this part or were you? Okay. So you had to solo this thing. So you've, you've shown some real metal, Brad. Like, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, you're... <laughs> Your dad's like, good luck, and your brother's like, good luck, and I'm sure they're good people, but you've just got this uh, extra um, thing in you, man. Like, um, you kind of got this ne this never die kind of. Yeah, wire. yeah. Where it, do you get that? You know, I want to eat. I think is the main thing, and and I got to be honest. I, you know, I I feel I can see the bigger picture, and I could have jumped ship too, and but I realized where I may be a, an able guy, entrepreneurialism is in my blood. I do not have a college degree. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go hit the job market, being in a family business for 23 years with no college degree. What am I going to do? Who's going to hire me? 
at almost yeah, 50 how are you going to keep making that mortgage payment and all the private school, whatever the hell's going on, right? I mean, how how, how am I going to make that transition? I, I got a better chance going it alone than I do jumping into the job market, you know? Yeah. You, you can. Yeah, right, right. I, I get that a thousand percent. So you just did the you did the math on that in your mind and said, you know, I'll just take my chances here. I'll make my my last stand. <laughs> exactly. And I, I will milk every dollar out of what I'm doing. Yeah. While I look for something else. And so you got to be really like this taught you resourcefulness and negotiate like you were you were able to you were able to, you were kind of did it in reverse. Right. So you learned bootstrapping at the end of success. Yes, exactly. <laughs> bootstrapping I, I, in the beginning. I learned it at the end, and and it was all about, in the end, monitoring that bank balance, you know. And I can say to this day, I have never missed a payroll, and I've never bounced a check for any company I've ever been part of in thirty some years of entrepreneurialism. To me, that's the confidence when you can pay your people, and you pay your people before you pay your other bills. They will be there for you. You can't make a payroll. Things evaporate really fast at that point. Yeah, that's huge, man. That's what's a cool. So there's a little Phoenix story right there. Um, so what? Uh, okay, what happened next? You 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 were you were kind of keeping this little thing. This thing got smaller and smaller, but you were keeping it alive on life. But and you kind of were making it limp along. It was limping um, along. It was profitable. It was paying me. You know what I needed to cover my bills, and. Um, what happened is, is uh, someone that actually used to work for me 20 some years before, Joy Genduza, who's the founder and CEO of Postcard Mania, print company. You said she used to work for you? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. Actually, she was working for my dad. It was in the very early 90s. She got pregnant and was a single mom and had to leave. Wow. She, she was our top salesperson. All right. Yeah. She, She's two, three years older than me, and um, she had start in '98. She had started her own print marketing company, and and she approached me in the beginning of 2017. And I knew that uh, in my New Year's resolution in 2017, I'm like, okay, this 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 I call it major liquidations, which was the new company, starting to come around, and I'm like. Well, you forget to mention you get failed to mention she she went before 2017 like she built she built this empire around this uh, postcard mania print business like so she's a mogul in this space in that time frame one of the biggest in the country yeah so she calls me i think it was early january right after new year's and she's like brad what are you doing i said i'm running this little business i'm building it back but she's like is that what you want to be doing? And I'm like, you know, I was just thinking about that. I don't know. You got something for me? What, what's your idea? You know? And uh, she went over to her house on Saturday and she explained to me this technology they developed in their company. And she wanted to spin it off. And I, and I asked her, I said, why me? You know? And she's like, listen, I've known you for 27 years. What you did to survive that collapse of your product market and how you persisted through that and you're still standing you still have a nice house and you drive nice cars and you're still you're not living in a bus stop and you're not working at mcdonald's or taking some telemarketing job you are a survivor and i have this little struggling seedling that they've been working on actually for about two years 
never got it past six figures in a year. And she's like, I'd like you to spin it off and, and run it. And, you know, I'll give you. It was kind of it was kind of their in-house technology, right? In-house in technology. And it and it and they they they, they built it around it in, in a world-class organization. So it was world-class. It was a world-class solution because it was built by one of the biggest players for what they do. So there's no point, no doubt it was on point, but they weren't putting real resources into like making its own, like having its own life outside the company, right? Well, they were trying, they had gone to a few trade shows and it was encountering resistance because you're going to other printers that are her, com her competitors. Yeah. And they're thinking, already watching you. They're already watching you gobble up every, you know, exactly. not, they didn't want to do more. They don't so want to feed, feed I, you I more. Man, and I'd be the face of it. Yeah. And she says, look, we're going to give you one of our best salespeople and you two do it, you know? And it was, it was great that we were under the wing of this big company for, for a while. And she would cut, you know, any, I didn't have to worry about the bank account. I was given a salary, uh, you know, not a, not a live and, and vacation like a rich man salary, but I'll tell you straight up, you know, uh, 150 grand a year guaranteed you make this thing work. And I'm like, it's a little less than I, I, I want, but, you know, she was giving me a pretty big equity stake. I can't complain. I'm going to get covered. If it works, I'll be great, you know? Totally, yeah. And uh, yeah. immediately got to work. Um, remember, I'm coming from a physical products industry, and I'm transferring into a SaaS marketing service industry. And, you know, I have to say, and, and I've told her about this later, is this is a big change. 27 years, I'm selling physical products. Now I'm selling SaaS marketing services. And it was a, there was a-, a For those, a, those watching soft, SaaS is software as a service. So the, the basically cloud-based uh, software, uh, you know, basically selling, you know, um, software, which is, you know, very different than physical products. Very different, you know, and, and but you know, it aligned. I, I was, I was, didn't finish saying, but when I was kind of creating this list of, I want to get into a new business and I, it, it filled the boxes. I wanted something that was recurring revenue, something that couldn't be disrupted, something that could grow. It would stack, which like a SaaS business. And I didn't want to have to like start from zero every month again, selling Hawking DVDs or any physical products. Yeah, because SaaS business um, for those, you know, is re typically recurring revenue and, and those kinds of things, right? Like, and and you and so this this idea of you know physical product and software just just a very different world. So you how did you get up to speed? How did you get your confidence to uh, to do it? You know my my take on it because I I was with you. I, we met up many times during your transition, and I want to give you my thoughts. You you um you didn't try to fake it. You were you seemed like you were very on your sleeve about um you know how what a challenge it was. And you know what that did is it made people want to help you. Like I remember wanting to help you. I remember wanting to like, because you were just very um, kind of transparent about it, which I don't know if, if you do that on purpose, but it seemed it's kind of one of your superpowers, by the way. It is. And, and the transparency is key because, you know, I don't try to be something I'm not. I knew this was going to be a challenge. I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses and I wasn't going to pretend this was something that was innate for me. It wasn't. Uh, I've always gravitated toward technology, so I knew that I could learn it. It's just how long was the runway going to be? Yeah. And but at the end uh, of, by, the, by the way, but at the end of the day, businesses buy um, business software, which is what you have. 
not for technology reasons. They buy them for business reasons. And that, as long as you, in fun, matter of fact, twice tonight when I asked you to tell me about about uh, direct mail 2.0, and I was fishing for a kind of a technical answer. You gave me business answers. You gave me ROI answers. You get like so your mind goes to the reason why people would buy it. They don't buy it for features and benefits, and they buy it for the business benefits, right? Exactly, and it is a business to business product. So. Um, I quickly brought my, I guess, industry, not industry, because it wasn't in the industry, but business knowledge. I saw weaknesses in the existing product that Postcard Mania had built. I started getting development on those missing pieces, which funny thing is, is Postcard Mania quickly adopted every feature set or benefit we built in. They incorporated in their own version. Um, our version of this product is now probably two or three echelons ahead of theirs, but because they're in this, they're a big company now. It's well, yeah, they didn't want to mean they couldn't. Have, I mean, it's very expensive to try to keep up with every every version and iteration and feature function. At some point, they needed to let you run because they would slow you down. But in the early days, their, their feedback was probably invaluable in the early well, iterations. Well, the in fact, when I said I want to do this, this, and this, and I'd only been there ninety days. <laughs> we're like, no, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's too expensive. This, that. And I'm like, so part of it is being able to listen to what people are saying, but yet proceed anyway, if you have a gut or, or you have information to contrary. And every one of the products that they said wouldn't fly has absolutely flown and yeah. always doubled our revenue every time I added well, Because you were always looking at it from a business person's perspective as if you were going to buy it. Like yeah. it had, you, from the, that's one of the advantages of you coming from the outside and not having, being too close to it. Like you used to buy expensive things. You were a business, like you understand how business owners think and, and you were like, no, it needs these things because that's what people want to buy it for. And it doesn't surprise me that they struggle with that because to them it was an internal technology solution, not a business purchasing. I get that. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I've found a new, I want to say, uh, interest in life and entrepreneurialism in my previous business, we were only providing the channel at which goods were, were, were distributed on. Now I'm creating products from nothing. And there's a pride in the development that I, you know, it takes six, eight, ten months to develop a, a software product and bring it to market. New version, or even a new version, even a new upgrade. Exactly. And when you do it and it's a success, it's such a validation of what you decided to do. Luckily, I've not picked a bummer product yet. And honestly, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I've listened to my salespeople and my support teams and what they say. These were not all of my own brainchild. I fully encompass the viewpoints and ideas of my team. You know, they're on the front lines. I'm not talking to the customers 24/7. They are, you know. Yeah. So yeah. So you've so you've you've now how many years now has it been since you three, three years and four months full time. I my wow. three four months. So you you're I think your, I think your your book's been stamped as a legitimate uh, software SaaS software CEO. I would say, I would say, I mean, the fact that I've achieved you know triple digit growth for for two and a half years, three years in a row, 
quarter over qu quarter over quarter for the most part, year over year. Uh, no, year over year. Year over year. Yep. 2016, I think they did $173,000 when it was within Postcard Mania. Uh, and uh, this year, we will definitely finish north of $2 million. Yeah. So, you know, that's almost 20 times growth in, yeah. in three and a half years. Yeah. And what I consider the best accomplishment is achieving profitability even during COVID. You know, uh, yeah. six out of our last eight months have been profitable. We're profitable year to date. Um, we're paying back. Uh, Joy's investment in terms mm -hmm. of a, a, a monthly amortized loan payment at this point, and we're still being profitable. So we're generating cash. And, and I'm not afraid to say that um, the last two or three months, about 22% of revenue is dropping straight to the bottom line. So yeah, which is pretty good. par for a good SaaS company, you know? That's really great. That's really great. So many SaaS, uh, that, that's really great. So many SaaS companies don't even make money, still struggle to figure out how to be profitable, make money. Um, and how do you balance this profitability with, um, with growth? Like, you know, there's always this trade-off. Uh, so many yeah. companies choose to not be profitable, especially in SaaS, so they can just keep pumping it into marketing and sales to keep grabbing more market share. Um, are you satisfied with the amount of market share that you're grabbing? Considering, um, considering that you could be you could be spending more it's a point that's hard to reconcile <clears throat> and i'll say um the mandate from our majority shareholder joy has been to get profitable and i've told her many times i can get profitable or i can grow faster and she unequivocally is get profitable um, smart, smart woman smart so woman. <laughs> it's eyes wide open kind of thing. You know, I'm we're profitable at the expense of some growth. We may not see triple digit growth maintaining this profitability. Um, could that position change? You know, maybe after I produce a year of profit, she'll be like, you know what? Go back, go ahead, spend every freaking cent. Yeah, now that everybody's whole, maybe we maybe we flip the dial. Yeah. So so I, I'm showing that I can deliver whichever one is required of me. I mean, so I'm good either way. For me, it's the sense of accomplishment. Sure, I want to make more money and, and grow quicker. You know, and part of it, my personal desire is, you know, I'm 53 years old. I'd like this to be my last necessary entrepreneurial venture. You know, um, I have been running teams and companies since I was 22. I mean, I even came into the last one as, as a as the CEO in training there, I'm not going to say I'm burnt out. I like the accomplishment, but oh. having oh. managing a team for 30 years, I'm getting to that point where I'm ready, you know? Yeah. You, get, you yeah. You, um, you've only got so many, you know, in you and there, and, and there is a, you know, the body and the mind, like there's a certain amount of, um, you know, I just turned 50. Brad. So uh, I, I can say this, right? Um, it, it is definitely uh, kind of, um, how would I say it? Like I used to throw so much more caution to the, I, I would sacrifice my body and mind at will. Like I didn't care. Just, it was all on the table. Right. And uh, the, you know, we get in this age, it's like, um, I want to start preserving a little bit. I want to, I want to like have a little, I want to have a little more gas in the tank to do, do fun things. Right. Versus before I didn't care. I was just workaholic. Um, like, you know, like crazy, you know, and, and it's, it's a responsibility, not just to myself. I feel responsible to my team. Yes. And if, if, if I'm not giving a hundred percent, how can I ask them to give a hundred percent? Right. You know? So, yeah. 
and, and it'd be nice one day. I have never not worked other than the two years I went to college since I was 14. And even when I was taking this transition from my previous thing into this venture with Joy, I said, hey, can I take a couple months off? I've never not worked. She goes, what? Are you kidding? I need you yesterday. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I have never not worked, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's great. Well, that's beautiful, man. I, I love how this is setting up for you, man. This is really gonna. This is really. <laughs> this is really setting up well. Um, so, as we kind of wrap up here, two questions for you. One, um, what do you see yourself doing in ten years? And don't tell me just sitting around playing with grandkids and stuff. I'm like, what do you? <laughs> I'm already doing that. So I've got my grandkids. <laughs> no, like, what are you doing? All right, I'll give. I'll back it down. What are you doing in seven or eight years? Because. Let's assume that you've let's assume that this has been exited, okay? And seven or eight, nine, ten years. What what do you um you know what are you doing? Honestly, I I would like to. I like entrepreneurial ventures. Do I want to live them nine to five and be a hundred percent responsible for their success or failure? That part of my life is coming to an end in the next yeah. five years. Yeah. At exit. I would like to be. Uh, a VC, an angel, um, advisor for something like an entrepreneur in residence for the wave where I can help others and impart my experience and knowledge and help guide someone else to success yeah. through my past failures and successes. That's what I truly like to do in terms of, of, you know, if I need to produce an income, you know, it'd be more of on a passive through, through investments or real estate, <clears throat> that kind of thing. That would yeah. be my Beautiful, beautiful. I love it, man. That's man. I want that for you so bad. And you're already like it's pretty almost already self-assured. I can see that. The next question would be, um, you know, the spirit of this podcast and the mission of what I'm doing is this kind of idea of advice for aspiring and early entrepreneurs. You know, so what um, what's kind of the the Brad Kugler, you know, go to advice that uh, or the you know kind of the philosophy thing that you kind of go to when when you were, if you were going to give advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, some young, you know, young person who's kicking it around, like what, what, what do you usually zero in on if you were headed one-on-one? You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I had an entrepreneur come to me today with that exact question. And I, I wrote a bit of a diatribe and I'll summarize it. You know, <laughs> you, you've got to have the passion for what you're doing first and foremost, because you're going to have to persist and you're going to have to go through the mountain or around the mountain. It ain't going to be a cakewalk, no matter what you think it is. Your other thing is you've got to have a value proposition. You have to have something that people are going to be willing to pay for. And if, if, if it's a product or a service, how is it better, faster, cheaper than what's already on the market? If you can't figure out that and you don't have a passion, don't bother. You're, you're going to spin your wheels and you're going to have more losses than successes. You're going to have more losses than successes probably anyway, but it's with those things that you'll be able to kind of get over that hump, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how do you put that in like concrete terms in terms of like um, when you say better, faster, cheaper, like is that like what we would call like a unique selling proposition or a differentiator? Yeah. It's, it's either one of those, you know, if you think in your own mind, you've got a widget or a better mousetrap or a service that you think is great, that's part of it. That's necessary. But you know what? Other people have to think it's great too. And it's, you've got to have that value proposition. And so valid, sounds like valid, proposition. It sounds like validation in there is what you're getting at too. Like the, you know, 
markets. Test, 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 test. Talk to your customers. Do not sit in your ivory tower thinking you've got it. You know, obviously, a guy like Steve Jobs, when he came up with an iPhone or an iPad, which hadn't really existed yet, he he hit a home run. You know, what yeah. doesn't yeah. happen for everyone. That's he, a good, you know what, that's a bad, it's almost a bad example, isn't it? Almost. It's a horrible right? example because you see what he did and you're like, I'm going to do that too. You don't hear about the thousand guys that tried something like that and it flopped. He had tens of thousands of the best people in the world behind him and hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. Almost nobody and, has. And anybody who's ever hit a home run like that is, is, will tell you, and publicly or privately, that that luck was a big factor, and, and so you so you got to take luck off the. To what you're saying a little bit is you got to take luck off the table with there. your own validation, right? Yes, yes. You got you've got to validate. You've got to prove that you have something that that people want. They're going to part with their money. You know. Last question: When you took over uh, Direct Mail 2.0. It was struggling, like you know, it had barely a hundred thousand. It 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 was internal. It maybe had a few external clients. Like, why? Like, it almost the signals were almost that it wasn't going to be successful. You know, I looked at it very hard when, when, when I asked Joy, you know, how, where is this business at? You know, um, it was it, it was pretty much almost a complete startup. I mean, you're talking about ten thousand dollars a month in revenue, losing money. Uh, double its sales and you know it had a product and it had a, about a dozen customers so that's what i'm saying is that like so just to pause right there the signals are not good like i mean that that uh and then also the validation you know was there wasn't that much validation we know there was like so like do you remember like you know when you know i know you just believe like all entrepreneurs you just jumped in and you said we're going to make this happen but um you know, like, why was, why were you able, why, why, why didn't it suffer the same fate of so many other products that were built before validation was really established? You know, for me, and this is where my own internal drive came in. I was also talking, you know, Steve Anderson of Autoloop. Yeah. So yeah. He, yeah. him and I, he, he had, a, he had a product business called uh, Live Water Sports, you know, this funky new uh, paddleboard. And he was sort of courting me a bit to come in and do that, you know, but this thing with joy checked those boxes. It was recurring revenue. It was a cloud-based technology. It was a disruptor rather than a disruptee. And I'm like, I can make this work. You know, I can make this work. You know, they did have the validation was happening. The validation was happening inside of inside of the company that you know she she had this really massively successful company. So if it was working for her, I guess it would be it would go to say it should work for others. Exactly, and that was the validation that I needed, and it was by far rate from a raging success. It was I think I consider it still in prototype mode, development mode, and I'm like if they can achieve a hundred grand in sales from a product that's 60% of the way there, I can take it the rest of the way. I mean, I, I, I've I, seen, you know, you've seen the startups in the wave. Some of them have zero revenue and people get yeah. behind, you know? So that's right. Uh, this that's one was funny. already past that. It was off the start. <laughs> right, right. It was a little clunky, but you were like, I can do something with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Well, Brad, man, this has been an awesome interview. I'm so glad we could get this recorded, and hopefully, you you uh, you can play this for you know your family and children. You know, hopefully, this will live the last of time, and this will be your story memorialized forever. Because you came and spoke to my class about a uh, a year or two ago, and you and you told this in detail. And um, that's one of the exciting things about doing this podcast. I I, I can record it for you know for you know can, it's going to be forever on the YouTube's. Yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely will. You know, my son's graduating college and he's starting to ask me about business and things. He's like, I'll, I'll give watch, it to him. Watch. Yeah. <laughs> watch this. You, here's that story. Come back and we'll talk about it. But no, man, this is great. And, and uh, thanks for indulging me. On, th- this is one of those things that I, I, it's just great to, for some young people to hear that what it's like to be at the top of the mountain, you know, financially and success and all those things. And, and then to and, to and to be able to know that dark clouds can form, and you need to pay attention to those dark. You, you gotta you've gotta figure you you've gotta take serious the storm, right? And then and then if you do get caught in the storm, like how do you like fight your way out of it, right? Um, and then how do you create such a reputation that you get a phone call like you got from a joy, right? Like exactly. This, none of this came easy. Like it, it's it's that's the, my favorite part about your story. It's true. When businesses go under, it can be very messy. I mean, you've heard the Florida Spine uh, Institute closure was a complete disaster, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. So you guys, you kind of sidestepped all that. And that was what's really cool is Joy kind of noticed all that. She was like, you know what? You like survived all of that and you're still standing and you never sold out. And you, and you just kind of like that you're the, you're the kind of guy DNA that I need. Like you're the kind of person that we need to like, to, to take this. I trust, I trust a person like that. If that was exactly it. And, and, and I wouldn't do it any other way, but I didn't even see at the time that that would be a benefit of this, you know, <laughs> of course not. No, no point. At no point did you think you were resume building? <laughs> yeah, not at all. I thought it was resume burning actually, you know, <laughs> you're resume burning. <laughs> well, good, man. Hey, it's a blessing to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait to get this published. And, uh, um, and thanks for being a friend over the years and, and um, not kicking me out of your office that day. And actually, uh, <laughs> you know, that's not how I roll, you know. So. All right, Brad. Hey, have a good night and, and uh, enjoy your family. And we'll be talking soon. Excellent, man. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, thank you my friend. Okay. Bye-bye.